This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. Good morning, everybody, and um, of course, good morning to people out there in um, IT land. Like people say, it feels a bit like, you know, romper room, you know. Hello, Mark. Hello, Julie. Hello, <laughs> hello Jenny. Hello. Although, in my era of romper room when I was a kid, that, whoever that lady's name was, do you remember what her name was? Patricia. Who was it? Miss somebody? Miss Patricia. Patricia, was it? Miss Patricia. She never said Neil. <laughs> I was ripped off. I spent many years in therapy over this, you know. <laughs> I still look at the television and just hope someone will say Neil. But no, anyway. So, let's pray, eh? Father, be with us this morning as we go through the scriptures, as we think about just the amazing story of how you call Mary and Joseph to follow you, to obey you in a way that is profoundly strange and profoundly challenging. Help us, Lord, to get our heads around what that actually means, what that might mean for us in this modern era. Amen. So five sleeps to Christmas, is that correct? But it's actually nine sleeps until the Obi-Wan Kenobi series starts on... Um, on um, Disney Plus, not that I'm addicted, but I'm counting it down if you're a bit of a Star Wars fan like me. So this morning we're going to look at how the ordinary meets the extraordinary, although you'll notice on my PowerPoint I've, I've swapped that around to the extraordinary meets the ordinary. Now I'd like to tell you that's because of some profound moment in my mind. It's actually just because I didn't read Lewis's thing correctly, so I got it backwards. <laughs> although it's arguable that the extraordinary does meet the ordinary in this story. <laughs> anyway, but the truth is I did get that backwards, I apologise. But look, basically what we're looking at is how an extraordinary God functionally moves towards ordinary people. And the Bible is just full of stories like this. And if you read the Bible regularly, you would know a lot of these stories. There are stories like Noah building an ark, even though there was no sensible reason to build one. And he was laughed at for it. Eventually what came out was that he was following God and he was correct in trusting what God had said. There are stories in the Bible about Abraham being asked to move his entire family and herds and go to a land that he'd never been to, live in tents and claim it as the future promised land, the land for his descendants. There are stories about Moses and the Israelites parting the Red Sea, fighting against Pharaoh and, and trusting God to walk around in the desert for 40 years to actually be fed by God every day. There are stories of Joshua walking around Jericho blowing trumpets for walls to fall over. There are stories of David fighting Goliath. There are stories of Daniel in a lion's den. The list just goes on and on and on of how God takes what we consider ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Now you might say, but Neil, they are extraordinary people. No, let me tell you, every one of those ones that I just talked about would not pass an ethics test in this current market to become a senior pastor of this church. I can assure you they are all morally bad, except for Daniel maybe. Daniel's a bit harder to pick, but the others, they've got some stories behind them, let me tell you. If they applied for the role here and our elders look at their application, I'm pretty sure, you know, application, uh, David, um, you know, out, you know, um, 
Oh, Abraham, oh, I'm not sure about that guy. Moses, yeah, he wasn't a very good orator. In fact, he had to get his brother to talk for him. No, out, out, out. However, when we get to the story of Joseph and Mary, which I'm going to argue for a second, is probably the most famous of all the stories in the scriptures functionally. What's very fascinating about it is simply this. It's been whitewashed and it has been, it's been sort of minimised. It's been sanitised over the years to the point that it looked like it's a cartoon series or a fable or some sort of fairy tale. And yet it is not. It is nothing like that at all. The story is actually the story of Mary and Joseph doing an extraordinary thing in obeying God in a way that is complexly strange and completely irrational and illogical. It is a story that we Christians are asked to believe of a virgin birth. Now, I've got three kids, six grandkids, I'm sure everybody, you know, we all know how all the plumbing works. It doesn't make sense that somehow or other this lady, Mary, becomes pregnant without the normal way the pregnancy is created. And yet, Christians are asked to believe this. It's a story of supernatural things like angels and dreams and a supernatural conception of a baby. It's the story of, a trusting, of trusting God and obeying him. It's God's MO to move people in extraordinary ways, to order people to do extraordinary things, and it's the test and story of obedience. And for Mary, it was about the favour of God and her obedience. And for Joseph, it was about him choosing kindness and grace over his right to punish and to reject and to shame her. Because that's what the society they were living in. Now, just to fill this out for you, in case you didn't know, if you look at the situation that Mary and Joseph were living in in Nazareth, it's not pretty at this time frame, okay? Nazareth was a rural area at the time of Jesus' conception. Mary was most likely dirt poor and working somewhere to earn a living as some type of um, help. Joseph was a tradie, they say. He was probably working with both stone and wood, but he would have also been quite broke and poor. Why? Because Nazareth was under Roman rule with Tiberius as the Caesar and what they know as the King Herod, who was a patsy of Rome, applying the most oppressive types of control on that society that we in Australia don't really comprehend as I sit here. They were being taxed roughly 60% of whatever they earned or the gross that they produced. So they are living roughly in 40% of whatever they get. They are living in fear and they are living in terror and they are, they are living with a paranoid and nasty king named Herod. And if you read the rest of the story through Luke, you will see that that guy in my mind, if I was to diagnose him, I would say he's borderline schizophrenic and he's borderline psychopathic. Because what does he do? He kills all the kids to try and make sure that he doesn't lose his right as king. That's not normal. That sort of stuff, right? Tiberius was also jealous. He was also a bit crazy, they say. He was politically poor. And he, in his reign as a Caesar, the whole Roman Empire went into a very, very, very dark phase of their story. So Jesus is born into this. The society Mary and Joseph lived in was therefore dangerous, oppressive, depressing, and volatile. Now, 
Nazareth was also a patriarchal society. The Jewish people at this time living under pharisaical law, was what's, it was patriarchal. So fundamentally, women are seen as a possession, although it's not exactly as a possession, as completely owned, but they certainly had very, very little rights. So public shame, isolation, being shamed and shunned were the tools or the weapons that if you broke the rules, that's what was going to happen. So let me tell you, don't get pregnant and not married in that society. It's not safe. Let's get the sanitised version out of the road. What God asked Mary to do was potentially dangerous and scary and potentially she could have been killed or at the very minimum stoned, sorry, minimum isolated, shunned and put away. And no one would have blinked because that's a society that was happening and that's the control that the Pharisees had. So you've got the Roman rules, you've got Herod rule and you've got patriarchal rule all running at the same time. Isn't that a fun day to live in? Okay, Mary and Joseph. Some people know this, some people don't, just so that you know, before we look at the Bible, Mary was probably around 17 years of age when she got pregnant. She was not in her 30s. She was not in her late 20s. She was not fully developed in some ways. In our society, we would say 17 is very young to have children. Doesn't mean it's not possible, but it is very young. Joseph was probably around 20. So again, when you look at the, if you ever look at the old paintings of Mary and Joseph and all that stuff, you see Joseph is usually painted as some old grey-headed fellow with a long grey beard. They reckon theologically that was to try and put a, continue to prove that it was a virgin birth because he was basically too old to you know, do what he needed to do to get her pregnant. That was kind of what they were trying to say, apparently. But really, he was 20 years old, he looked more like Lewis than he looked like, he looked like me. <laughs> that sort of stuff. He was a fairly young guy, okay, and he was broke. Even though he was a tradesman and he was a carpenter and probably a stoneworker as well, he was probably working for very minimum wages, didn't have a lot of money and certainly didn't have a lot of resources. And whatever he heard, whatever he built, whatever he earned, remember he's getting taxed roughly 60% of it. So again, it's a very, very tricky situation. Mary would have not had any formal education. Joseph would have. He would have had basic education. Now, they were engaged, which in their society is different to ours. Engagement in their society meant they were already, in the law's eyes, married. But they weren't living together, so they weren't functionally living as a couple. And the only reason that was, was because after they get engaged, and they actually do a whole pile of ceremonies in an engagement sense, that we actually do in a marriage sense. You know, when people get married now, they come and they walk down and they make, a, they make a bunch of promises to each other, right? And we call them vows, and that's correct. In their society, the vows were made before the ceremony. So the vows had already been given to each other. The reason they weren't living together and hadn't had the ceremony of marriage is because Joseph then has to go and build something to take her home to. Make sense? That's what they do back then. He had to actually provide for her. So he's got to go build a house and a functional area to take, take his bride back. And until he does that, she doesn't, they don't live together. And when he finally builds that, then they do the final ceremony and then he takes her home and now the marriage has begun. But being engaged in this society means they're in contract with each other and you can't break that contract easily. That is trouble if you break it. 
Let's look at the story of Mary. Luke chapter 1, 26 to 38. Now I'm going to read this to you as we go and I'm going to stop at various points to just build the story for you and to try and just get us our mind around what's actually going on here. So it's up there, right? Okay. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Stop for a second. Now, Elizabeth's pregnancy. If you read backwards in Luke you will find out that Elizabeth was the wife of Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest. The angel Gabriel has already fronted up and told Zechariah that Elizabeth's going to have a baby. That baby becomes John the Baptist, by the way. So John the Baptist and Jesus are actually second cousins, technically, because Mary and Elizabeth were cousins, right? So, do you notice that's pretty freaky that an angel named Gabriel is sent to Galilee to a virgin to be pledged. Now, the angel Gabriel, because he's a piece of player in this story. Before the appearance to Mary and Joseph, he appears to Zechariah in the first part of Luke. But before that, do you know the last time he appears actually in the Bible? It's 600 years before that to Daniel. Before that, he, he talks to Daniel, and he appears to Daniel when Daniel's distressed, and he comes to Daniel and he declares the coming salvation. And it seems to be when you look at the role of Gabriel through the scriptures as an angel, that's his task. What he does is he comes and declares the coming salvation. God has heard you and salvation is coming, is what his MO is. That's what God uses him for mainly. I'm sure he does other stuff, but that's his major role. Okay? So when he turns up to Zechariah and says, your wife's going to be pregnant, Elizabeth, because Zechariah doesn't believe him. And wouldn't it be love to have this man of power when the angel goes... You ain't going to speak for nine months. No talking for nine months. I'm not sure I'd like that power, actually. I thought that wouldn't be a wise power to have. <laughs> I think I would, you know, put that aside for the moment. So Zechariah learnt straight away that with God, anything is possible because Elizabeth was fairly old. So that's why Zechariah said, ah, you're having me on. But Gary says, your disbelief has caused you this result. Bang. You're not talking for nine months. So... That's what Gabriel's task is. So Gabriel has now been sent to Nazareth. And he's been sent to Galilee. And, he has, and he's been sent to talk to a lady named Mary, who's a virgin, who's going to be married to a Joseph, who is a descendant of David. But that becomes important later in the story. Let's keep going. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Now, just notice the word highly favoured, because that becomes important. Mary was greatly troubled, understandably, at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. Stop. Favour with God. Imagine this 17-year-old girl. I don't know where she was. Maybe she was asleep. Maybe she was in bed. I don't know. Don't know whether angels only ever turn up at night. I'm not exactly sure. But I think they might turn up any time for all I know. Um, but whenever he turned up, whenever Gabriel turned up, she sees an angel and he says, you are favoured with God. So what does it mean to be favoured with God? Well, kind of. With Mary, it means that God has found favour with her and it doesn't mean that everything's going to become wonderful and rosy. If you find favour with God, that doesn't mean your life is fantastic from that point on. 
it doesn't mean, but sorry, it does mean that God, the Almighty God, has laid his hand upon her life. It means that he has, he's moving towards her and he's going to use her for an eternal purpose. That's what favour with God actually means. And it also means for us, if you actually take it further, to find favour with God means to believe and invest in the idea of having ongoing hope. A hope that you can, that you can overcome all obstacles you are facing. The favour of God means God is with you. And therefore, you are safe or he is going to be with you and obstacles will be overcome. That's what favour really does mean. Let's keep going. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So, stop. Jesus' position is now declared as the son of God. The name Jesus, if you didn't know, simply means or literally means um, God or Yahweh saves. That's what the word Jesus means, God saves. So when the angel Gabriel declares the coming of Jesus, he is, remember he's in his job, his job is to declare the coming Messiah. He is there to declare the coming salvation. The salvation is arriving through the baby called Jesus who will be called Jesus because he saves and he's exalted as the son of God, says Gabriel. And that effectively means that he is God. So we get this wrong a bit in our, ling- in, our, in our English. To be called the son of means to basically to say equal to. So to be the son of God means he is equal to God. The Messiah, named Jesus, who the word means God saves, is coming in human form. Get, the, get your head around this. We Christians are being asked to believe this. Mary is being told at the moment, 17-year-old, that she's going to get pregnant and she's going to be bearing a child somehow. And this child is going to be called Jesus and he's going to be a saviour and he's going to be equal with God. How can this be, says Mary, since I'm a virgin? Full stop. Mary knows that nothing's gone on yet with Joseph, so how could she be pregnant? Now, that's a very good question, don't you think? Now, I don't know a lot about, I know a little bit about this stuff, but it's a pretty good question. How am I going to have a baby if I've not ever slept with a man? Sort of stuff. So, Mary, I think, knows how dangerous this is. Remember I said the culture she's living in? She knows how dangerous this is. To be pregnant and engaged and not married, that's not good. How's she going to explain this to Joseph? Really? How's she going to tell Joseph, by the way, we're engaged and I'm already pregnant? He knows that they haven't slept together. How's she going to, how's she going to explain that one? This is not heard of before. Remember, Mary knows the trouble she's in and she probably knows that Joseph isn't going to believe her at this point. Would you? Some lady told you, I'm pregnant, but not because of normal methods. It's because the Spirit of God came upon me and caused me to be pregnant. Would you believe it? I wouldn't. I know I wouldn't. 
my rational, logical, westernised mind would just go, nah, what's not being said here? <laughs> Sorry, what else has gone on? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. When Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age as well, and he, and he who is said to be unable to conceive in the sixth month, for no word of God will ever fail, says, Dan, says um, Gabriel. Now look at Mary's response. Get your head around this. It's dangerous. She doesn't understand. She's 17, an angel standing in front of her. And what is, she doesn't say, go away, you're crazy. She doesn't go, come on, come throw some water in my face and wake myself up. Doesn't go, I better go to the local priest and see whether I've gone nutty. Nothing like that. What does she do? I am the Lord's servant. Mary answers, may your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So what do we notice about Mary? Despite the culture she's in, despite the reality of becoming pregnant without normal processes and no way to prove what has happened, despite the fear of Jesus' rejection, the fear of the society's rejection of being shamed and shunned and isolated, despite, 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 Mary accepts what God wants. So she trusts, she obeys, and she has courage. Now, I am challenged. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a fable. This is the statement of someone willing to serve God regardless of cost. I'm challenged. Frankly, I think she's free-falling. And frankly, I think she's believing that God will be faithful. And somehow, Mary is managing to hold on to the idea of hope. Hope in a God who will be consistent with what he promises. So, let's have a look at this story very quickly from the point of view of Joseph. Okay, let's get the scriptures up for Joseph. So this is in Matthew. And by the way, the, if you, just in case you're wondering why is one half of the story in Luke and one half in Joseph, one, sorry, one half, sorry, in Matthew, um, lots of arguments around that. Matthew was basically written to the Jews to show that Jesus was the Messiah. Luke was written more generally to Gentiles, they say, to people that weren't Jewish, to actually state facts of what had occurred. So there's all these arguments, and we can spend hours just doing that kind of stuff, but really that's what it all boils down to. When Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew, he wrote it to the Jewish people to actually point them to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. Because remember, the Jewish people don't believe that at that point. So... Let's have a look at Matthew 1, 18 and 25. Joseph's story. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pleased to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, notice that, and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, notice that, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Stop. So, at this point, Mary's right. Joseph doesn't believe her. He doesn't believe that she got pregnant through the Holy Spirit. If you look at it from Joseph's point of view, Matthew's basically saying at this point, Joseph doesn't believe it. And because of the structure of the patriarchal society that they're in, 
And because he is faithful to the law, he has the power at this point. He can disgrace her publicly and no one would even argue the toss. That's how bad it is for Mary. But Joseph was faithful to the law, as you see, and didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. Now, why is that? Is he a nice man? Was he just a nice man? He just was a nice man. He just didn't want to... He's just a nice fellow, really. Is that what it is? Maybe. Don't know. That's what the fairy tale wants us to believe. That he was a nice man. And I'm not saying he wasn't. But I think there is a profound difference between knowing about something and really understanding the intent of something. See, it says there that Joseph was faithful to the law. So I'm going to suggest to you that Joseph already had the balance right in how he was living his life before Yahweh, in that he knew, even by understanding the law, that, that um, the intent of the law was for people to be kind and graceful. You know, it's really true. If you really understand Old Testament stuff, God's kindness and grace keeps rolling through it. It was that the Pharisaical people just didn't like that because they lost control if people had to be graceful and kind. But Joseph somehow knew that he was supposed to be that. So I think he's got the balance right because he sits as a follower of God and he knows the basic drivers of the follower of God or Yahweh as he would have said is kindness and grace so he acts with kindness and grace rather than vengeance and power towards Mary because he is being obedient to what he knows to be true of the God he follows that's why he's like that because God will put on his heart, puts on his heart and puts on all our hearts I think how we are supposed to behave towards him and towards each other so often in my practice, in my therapeutic practice that I work, I see people in my office who have just forgotten that, who are just so justified in their behaviours that their anger, their vitriolic rage is just twisting them up and they will tell me that they're Christian and I'm not here to judge that, but my goodness, if they were able to embrace kindness and grace, I think their life would be so much more profoundly effective and so not lost in twisted up vengeance or righteous indignation. But you know, in the case of Joseph, guess who's about to turn up? Now, is it Gabriel? It doesn't actually say in Matthew it is Gabriel. Most of the people that study this stuff intently kind of indicate it probably was, but because we've got to be politically correct, we don't say it's Gabriel, we just say it's an angel. Does that make sense? But good chance it's Gabriel, I reckon. But I don't know. One of those things we'll find out one day we get to heaven. Maybe I can ask Gabriel. Was it you that turned up? To... I don't know. <laughs> can you ask the question for me? Anyway. Verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord, here he comes, appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you in the name Jesus. Okay, God is with God who saves because he will save the people from their sins. Stop. So, the angel has told Joseph to not divorce her. He has told him, put down your rights to follow the righteous nature of what you believe the law gives you the power to do and instead be kind and graceful 
and instead be faithful to what God is calling you to do. So Joseph is now challenged, as well as Mary. He's equally challenged to obey God, to do what doesn't seem reasonable, to believe an angel, to raise a son like he's yours, but know that he isn't. Joseph is also challenged to trust. This is not a fairy tale. This is a challenge. He's now asked to raise the saviour. Now, whether he knew exactly that at that point, I don't know. But he does know it's not his son. And he knows that he's not able to sleep with Mary until after Jesus is born. So there's that going on as well. And he knows that somehow or other, God has called him into some type of task, which is profoundly strange and very difficult, but it is one about saving. It's one about intervention and saving not following law and destroying. So now in Joseph, we now see Mary, by the way, or, or Mary's favour in God saves, because when Joseph gets the dream and changes his mind, do you notice that therefore Mary is now protected? So God has intervened for Mary at Joseph so that Mary is safe. The baby is safe. Now Joseph's task is to swallow his pride, swallow his indignation, swallow his righteous right to publicly embarrass her and instead marry her, care for her, raise the child, follow God and do that with kindness and grace. What a task. Again, this is not a fairy tale. This is tough. In a society where there is oppression, fear, anger, rage, poverty, Joseph's task is now to raise this child and to protect Mary. Keep going. 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, if you're interested, there are many references to that, but the main one is from the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah 7.14, if you want to look that up later, which says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So what is prophesied, prophesied in the Old Testament from Isaiah is now occurring in Nazareth. Let's keep going. So when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until the birth of the son and he gave him the name Jesus. God saves. So Joseph now acts with obedience to the task he's now been given. He acts with kindness and gentleness towards Mary and he acts with the absolute integrity to what he's been told to do by God. He is obedient. So how do we take this and make this... Make some sense for us. Well, like I keep on saying to you, the story is no fairy tale. The story to me is a challenge to have courage and obedience and hope. Now, Richard Foster was a guy that said that um, the problem in our society is that busyness isn't of the devil, busyness is the devil. In other words, we're so busy in our society that we don't stop and listen. God is often speaking, but we're just too busy to hear him. I was looking at some stuff recently around anxiety, and there's a fascinating phrase that says, in Western society, busyness has become the society's most acceptable pathology. It is acceptable in our society to be busy. How are you? Oh, I'm busy. How are you? Oh, I'm busy. It is what we're supposed to be. 
It is a way of masking us from stopping and calming down and hearing what's actually going on. People are so busy that that's acceptable. Very good, you're busy. No, very bad you're busy. Very bad because you're not stopping and listening, says Neil, who often gets busy. But I've been lately been trying to train myself out of people ask me how I am. I've been trying to say, not to say I'm busy, but to say something else, which is the truth, like I've got to learn to stop. I've got to learn to actually listen. I've got to learn to... So I'm making choices now to pull some of the stuff back that I'm doing so that I'm not so busy because busyness isn't a particularly healthy pathology. But it is the one that I think in our society, the devil, if you want to say that, particularly encourages us to be because the busier we are, the less we listen. Joseph and Mary were dirt poor. They were very ordinary. And yet God called them in a way that is profoundly special, and they were obedient. So I really don't believe God has yet finished with calling us ordinary people to do extraordinary things. But early in the day, we were hearing Nathan here talk about Bula. He's right. It started about 25, 30 years ago. A bunch of people decided to get together. They, there was no profound moment. There was no angel that told them to go to the cabbage tree near Ballina and then eventually to Tara to Perfleet. What it was, it was simply something in our hearts at that point said it would be a good thing to try so off we went to obey god and up it went it's not about us it's about how god worked for us that's currently running in this church there's zillions of stories in this local church here of people that are just following god but nathan's story is another really important one it's it's not ordinary people following what god felt like they wanted us to do years ago it was tough. It was hard. But you know what? Look at the ministry that's growing now. You know? None of us ever thought it would be how it is now. None of us. God had a plan way beyond our expectations. Perhaps we are called to stand firm in believing a story that the world around us thinks is fables and craziness. Perhaps we will have to face embarrassment when we actually say we believe in a virgin birth. We believe in a a death and resurrected Jesus people look at us and think we're nutty but the reality is deep inside of us we know it to be true and what I tell you what it actually in my mind creates a form of community if you sit and look around this church we are very diverse people from diverse backgrounds with diverse backward stories but why are we here and why are we out there in IT land watching this what's common that's pulling us together it has to be the community of the risen Christ. It is because we functionally believe in a Jesus that actually saves. We encourage each other by being with each other, but the community is drawing us together. Hence, we use phrases like brother and sister in the church. Right? It's because Christ actually brings the community. So he's saving. He's saving us from the fear of death, yes. From the, from the, from the long annihilation, yes. But he's also building community right here, right now, as we stand here. We are here for a reason. You are sitting in these chairs for a reason. And I suggest to you it's partly because the community of God is here and you are being called to it because of your belief in Christ. It's not, I'm assuming that I'm probably the only person here that goes for the Parramatta Reels. I don't think anyone else here does. <laughs> is there another one? There are two. There are oh, three, my wife Judy, sorry, sorry I apologize, three, three, there's three of us in this room. So even I have to admit, it's not our love of the Parramatta Reels that forms us at this point. It is our love of Christ, it is our belief in something that is profoundly strange that brings us in here and creates community. 
Perhaps God is speaking to us right now. I think God's asking some very profound and easy questions. What, no, no, I'll take that back. He's asking very profound questions that are, that are easy to hear but hard to respond to. Will you obey me? That's one. Will you follow me? Will you listen to me? And do you trust that I'm faithful? That's the challenge in front of us. This story, my brothers and sisters, is not a fairy tale. It's a challenge to ask God what he wants from us. It's a real story of God's love for us. And it's our call to stand up, to listen, and to respond. Amen. This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.info.